learning to quiet that inner critic um, that perpetuates all of those negative beliefs that you kind of have gathered up because of your executive dysfunction. That is the key to living life successfully with ADHD. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 170 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. In the thousands of ADHD women that I have had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. Not one. So for all of these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to April Kane. April is a clinical psychologist who lives in Perth, Western Australia with her husband, seven-year-old daughter, I think almost eight-year-old daughter, German Shepherd Cross, and a not-so-nice cat. She grew up mostly in Melbourne, Australia, although also spent time living overseas in Malaysia and Indonesia. With the late diagnoses of ADHD and attentive type, April has had lots of career changes, twists, and turns. After struggling to transition from high school to university and changing jobs every few months, April joined the Navy and served for six years before deciding to follow her heart and begin a psychology degree. After 12 long years, as well as working full-time and becoming pregnant in the first year of her postgraduate degree, she eventually finished with a Bachelor of Science in psychology with first-class honors and a master's in clinical psychology. Even as a psychologist, April has followed several different areas of interest. She has worked in a group private practice for nearly five years, seeing therapy clients and conducting different types of medico, legal, and forensic psychological assessments, and more recently has discovered a particular area of interest in adult ADHD assessments. April is also the operations manager and clinical lead and supervises mentors, early career psychologists. Phew, April, did I get all of that right? You did get it all right, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so I have to ask you first off, I know that we're going to go to the ADHD diagnosis story. That's what we always start with, but I'm afraid I'm going to forget. What is medico-legal and forensic psychological assessments. What do you do in those? Right. So um, forensic psychological forensic psychology is basically any psychology where there's some sort of legal context um, involved, right? So the medico-legal and forensic are sort of, um, they can sort of be bundled up into one, although we differentiate them um, at, at our practice. So Forensic, yeah, as I said, anything with a legal context. So I do a lot of uh, family family court work, so um, single expert witness reports for um, families who are sort of caught up in the family court process, um, particularly around where there's um, issues with children and um, 
custody, I suppose, you know, who's spending time with who. And parenting capacity assessments. So uh, we do have a good relationship with here what's called Department of Communities, Child Protection and Family Support. So um, Child Protective Services essentially, I'm not sure what you call it over there in the States. Um, Same thing. Yeah, so uh, I, I guess, again, sort of assessing, yeah, doing really kind of robust assessments where parents have unfortunately not been able to look after their their children and it's resulted in their children being removed from their care Um, and sometimes it gets to a point where the department asks us to do an independent assessment evaluation and answer some questions that they might have about the parents functioning um, and their capacity to be able to meet their child's needs um, across you know cognitive social emotional those sorts of um, domains um, which is really tricky, particularly when, you know, often people caught up in these systems are, well, yeah, much more often than not, are very traumatised, both the adults and the children. And, yeah, so so that's that's um, sort of the more forensic side of things that we do here or that I do in, in my capacity at work. And uh, medico-legal, um, Sometimes, you know, if somebody's had an accident that's impacted their psychological functioning or they might have had, um, you know, maybe like a medical, a medical trauma that's impacted them psychologically, quite often as part of the process that they go through with maybe trying to get compensation or trying to assess the, the damage or the impact on their functioning, we might be asked to do a psychological assessment and report back either to their lawyer or to the tribunal. So the the work you do with children seems like it would be so difficult for an ADHD person because of the emotional dysregulation. Like, I don't know. I couldn't do it. Is it as difficult from the outside it seems to be? Emotional dysregulation for the children, you mean? I'm talking about me. Me, yeah. <laughs> you know what? When I, I actually... I was in a completely different, won't surprise you to hear, I was in a completely different job as a psychologist before mm-hmm. I went on maternity leave. Um, and that was my first job as a psychologist. That job, um, what I knew was that I couldn't go back to that job coming off maternity leave for a number of reasons. And what I was interested in and, and still remain interested in is assessment. So mm-hmm. I love assessment because I love putting the pieces of the puzzle together to try and you know figure out why people get to be the way they are why do we function the way we are um like the way we do why do we struggle with the things we do um I just love sort of understanding the whole person and all of the the factors that have sort of led them to be where they are right now in the world and how they are in the world and so when I came off maternity leave, I worked for a an, a nonprofit organisation. Um, I'm not sure if I should mention the name or not, but I worked for them just doing comprehensive assessments of children. So I assessed the children who had been taken into care and who were in the foster system. And what I did, you know, the context of that was um, providing feedback as to how their experiences up to that point had shaped them and had um, sort of impacted their development um, across various domains and, you know, figure out the things that they struggled with and then make recommendations as to how we could um, best assist them to, you know, function better, make life easier. You know, what therapy did they need? What occupational therapy did they need? What Um, you know educational interventions or supports might they need and then so that's that sort of coming off maternity leave with a six-month-old baby and I was still studying I kind of dove into that work and I thought this is going to sound weird I thought that I would find it really emotionally taxing and I kind of worried a little when I didn't initially because uh, I was like, what's wrong with me? Um, you know, I remember talking to my supervisor at the time and saying, you know, not that I wasn't upset, but I think there was, there's a, there's a, for me, when I work in assessment, there's um, an element of being really detached from, yeah. you know, you're sitting separate from what's going on. Whereas 
working therapeutically with kids, um, I can see where that would feel much, much different. And I have done a bit of that. I choose not to do that work now in my in my professional life. Um, I just feel that's not where where really where my strength where my strength lies. Yeah, I. It is hard. It's sad, but it's also to me really interesting and. I think really valuable when we can make recommendations that make sense and that improve people's lives. Um, I, I think not all parties would would agree. You know, there's always got to be some. There's always someone involved in the assessment process, no matter if it's family court or parenting capacity or, um, you know, whatever context I'm doing an assessment and a report in. There's always somebody who feels probably as though you know, the formulation's unfair or it doesn't quite, you know, I, I'm not necessarily agreeing and saying what they want me to say, which is the whole point, right? Like is to be independent of the process and sort of gather all of the information, put it all together and have it make sense to people who are not necessarily psychologically minded who might not have these kind of insights about all the different factors and, and contexts that have this interplay. Well, it doesn't surprise me too that you'd be really good at taking all of the, well, ideation, right? You have all of these things that you're seeing all at the same time and being able to put them together um, in a way that maybe, you know, other people without your brain, they couldn't see it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I think that is, you know, it's one of the, the questions that I know that you ask you know, later on, you know, what are your strengths? What are your ADHD strengths and how do they kind of work in your life? And I do really feel as though if my brain didn't work the way that it does, I probably wouldn't be able to make sense of these things in the way that I do. Not that other people who don't have ADHD can't do this work well, um, but I do feel like that really, you know, my strengths really my so ADHD it. kind of yeah plays to that so wonderful yeah. Yeah. okay so let's talk about the ADHD diagnoses first I don't know if yeah. you want to start with childhood or you want to start with the diagnoses and then what you yeah. saw once you you know hindsight yeah you tell me okay well so for context when I you know recently diagnosed I was diagnosed in January of this year right yay <laughs> I and it was such like a holding my breath moment. I just felt so emotionally invested in the outcome. Um, and I really don't know what I would have done had I not received that diagnosis. I, because I really believed in my heart and in my mind that this was true for me. Like this is how I, I, I sort of had come to identify and understand myself. So I guess taking it back a little bit what led me to pursue a diagnosis when I first started working in private practice as a psychologist I and that was after that non-profit job um, that I just spoke about you know I wanted to make the move and work therapeutically with people not just do the assessments um, with the kids I one of my sort of first referrals was a young man who was I got a letter from his um, medical practitioner that sort of said, you know, question mark, ADHD slash anxiety, question mark, you know, for your opinion and management. And I thought, well, I don't really know anything about, I don't know much about ADHD. I sort of had that typical understanding of, you know, that people have or that thought, you know, you think of ADHD and you think of like a disruptive little boy in the classroom kind of you know, calling out and having social difficulties and, um, yeah, just sort of challenging behaviours. And so but this was a grown man and I thought, well, that's, you know, I hadn't sort of heard about ADHD being diagnosed in adults. I was very early in my career at that time and I sort of thought, I said to the client, well, I don't know much about this. I do know that there's a really big overlap with anxiety and certainly, yes, I can see you're really anxious and I hear that you're really anxious. But what we could do is, you know, let's do a brief screening um, tool just to sort of see if it indicates anything, you know, if any ADHD kind of symptoms come up and whether further investigation is warranted. So 
we went through this checklist and a lot of your listeners um, are probably familiar with this checklist. It's the ASRS, the Adult Self-Report Scale. And so I was going through the questions with this client and found myself um, sort of mentally ticking off many of the responses, like more than he was. Um, and so that's when I, f- and I had sort of not long finished my master's degree, my postgraduate studies. And I thought, wow, <laughs> what if this is what's going on for me? Because I had this sense for a really long time that I was struggling, um, just kind of like scraping by, struggling through, you know, basically clawing my way through my degree um, and, you know, doing really well, but you know, externally doing really well, getting really great feedback, getting really high marks and on the face of it, successful kind of academically. But the the felt experience for me was just of things being really difficult, daily life being really difficult, keeping up with myself and with my schedule and with things like paying bills on time and remembering to go to appointments and things were really hard for me. Um, and I just thought, oh, that's just me. No, I'm just crap at adulting. I am just, um, you know, all of these kind of labels that we internalize for ourselves over our lives. And anyway, so that got me thinking and that was in 2018 and I sort of didn't dare to, even talked to my husband about it until late last year. I talked to a couple of friends about it. One friend who was very validating um, and and always is. She's a huge support. And, you know, other people, even other psychologist sort of friends who I mentioned it to were kind of like, oh, yeah, no, you know, you're just describing what it feels like to be a woman like to be a professional successful woman you know (laughs) and so I thought you know I'm probably pathologizing um what's just a normal experience and this is just how women who work um and have children and manage households and all the stuff you know this is just how they feel right and so the thought that then I also couldn't keep up um, and struggled so much was really, um, I guess, like a bit a bit debilitating and demoralising. <laughs> um, but anyway, I guess sort of some things happened for me last year and I f- found that sort of that, you know, just keeping my head above water was becoming more and more difficult for myself and I sort of thought, right, I really need to find out once and for all whether I do have ADHD Um, And if I do, I would love to be able to put a reason to why I struggle so much. Um, So, yeah, that sort of led me to visit my medical practitioner and get a referral to a psychiatrist and undergo a very, very thorough assessment (laughs) and, yeah, and be diagnosed early this year. So, you know, I love talking to psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, other medical professionals who have gone through, and they have ADHD, and they've gone through all of this education, mm. yet somehow it sounds like, you know, in, in many cases, you're not really trained in ADHD at all, but yeah. especially not when it comes to women and girls and what it looks like. Yeah. And I'm like, what yeah. the heck, April? <laughs> 100%. Like, there's just sort of this oh, you know, no, if you had ADHD, you would know about it because you're a psychologist. And so all of this self-doubt sort of comes into it. And, you know, the more I educated myself by, you know, your podcast actually, Tracy, was a huge thing for me in terms of my, I don't like to use the word, but, you know, like my journey to understanding myself and, and, and understanding, you know, whether or not I related to and identified with, with having ADHD pre-diagnosis, um, listening to, you know, podcasts of lived experience and um, professional um, people speaking about ADHD and, you know, reading, you know, from reputable sources, you can find anything if you Google hard enough, but reading from, you know, reputable sources and, yeah, really educating myself on the differences and the more and more I 
educated myself, the more I became much, much more certain that this was what was going on for me. And that's actually what made it even more difficult. I would use even maybe the word hurt or, yeah, it was a really, it became really emotional, a really emotional experience for me if I'd kind of put the idea out there tentatively to somebody and and then sort of got the feedback like, no, you don't have ADHD or, yeah, so, yeah. Kind I, of I, could so, I can so relate to that. And you said something earlier that you were so vested by the time you had done all this research because you knew it was ADHD. And I hear this from women all the time. I felt the same way. And I also, like in our big group, you know, the ADHD for smart-ass women big Facebook group, there are women who go in for a diagnosis every day and they're told, oh, no, no, you're too smart. It can't possibly be ADHD. Oh, you're a woman. Women don't have it. You know, I mean, just all of this misinformation. And I just can't even imagine what would have happened if Mm. someone had said that to me because I was so certain too. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, it gives you a completely different lens through which to understand yourself and to understand what is, you know, what's going on for you and why you struggle. And that's why it was so important to me. You know, I I have a, a mentor who's a, I see her for supervision. She's wonderful. And I sort of said to her in one of our first sessions, it felt like this big confession, you know, early last, early last year before I decided and pursued a diagnosis I said you know I feel like there's something that you really need to know about me I think that I might have ADHD and then I kind of like waited for like some kind of reaction and she was interested and curious and that was awesome and and we kind of explored she's kind of like well why hadn't you why haven't you pursued a diagnosis and I became really emotional and I said because I'm scared about not getting a diagnosis like I'm scared about what if I go through the assessment process and I you know the feedback is no you don't have ADHD she said well what would that mean to you what would that mean about you and I said I got you know quite emotional I said you know basically just that I'm a shit person That would mean to me all of these things and these ideas and these labels that I've given to myself over the course of my life, which I now understand to be related to the difficulties I've had with my executive functioning, you know, things like I'm just lazy, I'm just unmotivated, I can't stick to anything, I'm just a failure. Even though objectively I'm not a failure, that's not what it feels like when you have these experiences over the course of your life that kind of build up into a really kind of intense feeling. So yeah, I I said to her that that was my biggest fear that I would go down the path of being assessed. And then what would I do with that if I didn't have, you know, if it turned out that I don't have ADHD. So yeah. yeah. So tell me, once you knew it was ADHD and you had the benefit of hindsight, What are some of the symptoms that you always wondered about, you know, from childhood on that you now recognize them as, oh my gosh, that's clearly ADHD. And just, I think I mentioned you were diagnosed primarily inattentive. Is that correct? Primarily inattentive. And I did question with my psychiatrist, which said there's a lot of evidence for inattentive on my profile, she says. Um, And I know that because being me, I also kind of scored my own profiles and wanted to know what they looked like before I went to the appointment. Um, I I knew that there was a lot of evidence for inattentive, and I said, but I feel, ugh, it's like, I almost wonder sometimes, Tracy, if I have got like you know a combined type, but you know, typical for women, we don't have this outward display of hyperactivity mm-hmm. and restlessness. We can experience it very internally, right? Yeah, so, in our brain. Yeah, in our brain and in our body. So, you know, I I have this kind of internal restlessness um, and busyness that's really different from, um, you know, the inattentive kind of distractibility, like a little bit, you know, vague and flighty. It feels really different to me, although I have that too. Um, And I do notice, you know, something I'm quite, you know, I sit with clients, you know, I see seven clients a day across the day and, you know, they're in discrete sort of 50 to 60 minute, you know, blocks of time that I sit with my therapy clients. And even then, you know, like I'm a little bit restless. I think most of my clients would, you know, agree if I said, you know, 
you know, if they were listening to this, they'd go, yes, she moves around a lot in her chair. Um, you know, she's adjusting her posture all the time. So, yeah, I wonder if there's a little bit of combined type. You sound, problem. yeah, it sounds like combined type because mm. there is external restlessness as well. You know, and my my psychiatrist said to me when I asked her that, um, she said, yeah, I don't see that. I don't see that for you. And I was like, oh, this is where I feel so frustrated. And not with her, but just with, you know, like this kind of really typical or stereotypical understanding of what it looks like for women. And this, this, you know, the hyperactivity, we experience it quite differently, I think. Um, so, yeah, and I, I agreed with her and I said, yes, I'm sitting here really nicely on your couch. You know, I'm comfortable. I, I, and I said, you know, I was noticing and I, I noticed her, I said, you know, I'm sitting here like fiddling with the, the clasp on my bag the whole time. I'm like tapping my, you know, I had my legs crossed. I said, you know, like I'm kind of tapping my foot back and forth. I, and I and said, who cares what you're doing if you feel like you're going to jump out of your skin, right? Exactly, right. And I said, but, you know, also, and this is another big thing about, you know, I think one of the reasons why women go and little girls, you know, go so under the radar is that, this kind of idea of masking, you know, we mask our symptoms as different expectations and rules and societal kind of, you know, ideas of for little girls, for females. Um, and, I, and I'm using, you know, very simplistic, you know, male and female, and I understand this, a, a range of how people identify. Um, but, you know, just to keep, you know, that kind of simple, you know, yeah we have these you know little girls are you know quiet and compliant and uh, you know good you know what I mean this this kind of idea of um hyperactivity and uh, there's like kind of different behavioral expectations I think particularly in primary school um and so when I think about myself in primary school and high school you know I was a I was the helpful kid I would get up and hand out the worksheets. I would probably go to the toilet and have a toilet break, even if I didn't really need to go. I, you know, was probably active in that way, but it wasn't obvious. It was just kind of seen probably as um, approval seeking, maybe. Yeah. And then sort of as a teenager, what did I notice? That's probably really maybe where the inattentive stuff um, started to become more prominent for me. Now, part of the diagnosis right I asked my parents for my old school reports and all I could find sort of because we moved around so much things are in storage different places it's actually a miracle I could find any of them um but yeah I went through I sort of had some high school school reports and I went through and put tabs on all of the pages that where I felt there were comments that were red flags or you know pink flags because you know, they didn't stand out at the time as being anything except, you know, she's disorganized. She just needs to organize herself better. She's always late with her homework. You know, why can't she hand things in on time? She lost marks for this big assessment piece because it was three days late. If she just tried harder, if she just applied herself, she's distractible and chatty and seems more interested in the social aspect of school than, you know, applying herself. And, for goodness sake, like I was stunned when I put my school reports on the table and looked at all of these little post-it tabs that I'd stuck out of the pages and I felt so sad, you know, and I, when I certainly, you know, came out to my parents and said, I've been diagnosed with ADHD, I was also, I wanted to be really clear and say, I don't want you to feel like um, I'm blaming you for not seeing something because I don't. Hey, I don't know if I would have met diagnostic criteria. Like I don't know if there was enough impairment sort of yeah. through, you know, until probably until I was in my mid-20s, mm-hmm. mid to late 20s, yeah. Um, but and so, yeah, I just sort of wish that the research had changed sooner, right? And so, you know, the research has developed so much over the last sort of 30-odd years about what ADH looks like in and how, you know, there's clear differences between males and females. Um, and I wish that had come much earlier so that 
I don't think I necessarily would have had different experiences, but I certainly would have had a different way to understand myself and perhaps be, you know, have a, a kinder internal voice, not be so critical of myself. And so this is why I'm sort of all over the place. I feel like I'm rambling. Sorry, Tracy. You're actually not at all, April. In fact, one of the things that I've been thinking as we talk is I can see where, you know, I'm not with you, so I can't physically see you moving around, but just the way you speak. When I typically interview someone with ADHD, so I am super hyperactive. They wind me up because they're all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of trying to corral them, but then, you know, I'm wound up. And so I'm going all over the place versus you have this calm and your, your speech is very measured and thoughtful. Mm-hmm. So I could actually see how it could be missed. You just sound very intelligent. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Tracy. Not uh, you know, to say you, that ADHD people don't, but you know yeah. how, I mean, I certainly can start here and end up there and go over there and, you know, yeah, then I tie it together start. in a nice bow. <laughs> and I think, you know, and that's what I probably noticed conversationally that I, mm-hmm. you know, and I posted like a little bit of a, you know, one of those pictures, what are they, like a GIF or a GIF or a meme or uh-huh. something, anyway, like, you know, this is a big thing in our work kind of group chat. And I posted one the other day and one of my supervisees just replied privately and laughed. And she said, yes, this is so you. But, you know, what I had said was something like, I'm trying to find the message, but um, it's basically like, you know, when you have everyone's attention, but you forget where your story was going, that is me conversationally. And I think... (laughs) sometimes professionally like sort of depending on on the client and my relationship with the client but yeah I think if you could see me you said I can't see you but you sound very calm and measured I'm talking so much with my hands I'm gesturing all over the place um, like kind of trying to show you you know I'm referring back to my childhood and I'm pointing over there and so you know there are ways that it presents but if you didn't know what you're looking for, if you didn't have the context of all of these other things going on, you know, in my, in, for me personally, like in my life, in, you know, hearing the things that I struggle with or how my mind works, I think you wouldn't necessarily go, oh yeah, she's got ADHD, right? Yeah. So when you were growing up, mm. did you do pretty well in school? I mean, it sounds like you didn't do poorly enough to you know, that there were any red flags. No, yeah, no. I was a very, i um, going to toot my own horn here, I was a very bright child, um, particularly mm-hmm. in primary school. You know, I was really adva- a really advanced reader. I was sort of in the top spelling groups in primary school and, you know, I didn't struggle in primary school. Yeah. So, April, clearly you have a passion for educating and advocating for how ADHD presents differently in women and girls. So my question for you would be, in your experience, because you're in the trenches every day, what do you think the classic ADHD presentation is in girls? And I mean your classic, not the medical community's classic. Yeah, so, I mean, can I refer to my daughter? Is yeah. that okay? Yeah, because I because I don't work therapeutically with kids, I I don't, you know, see a lot of that in my practice. But what I do see, so my <laughs> I see so much of myself in my daughter, right? Um, and I and we we my husband and I suspect, and this is part of the driving factor for me to try and, you know, to get my diagnosis because we know the heritability is so high. You know, so I'll describe her and I think probably she's quite typical of a little girl who, you know, and speaking to other friends and I've got friends who are teachers in the primary school where she goes to and and other friends who are teachers and I think the common thing that I hear from them is that like, yeah, we just don't kind of see it. We don't see it in little girls. Um, but what I see and what I would describe is, you know, she blurts out answers so this is at school right she blurts out answers she's super chatty she can't um she knows she needs to put her hand up but she just kind of struggles not to call out at the same time she is really like she moves around a lot so you know like she's one of those kids always swinging on her 
seat. I'm terrified she's going to knock her teeth out because she's going to fall off a chair and whack her face on the bench. Um, she's messy um, and overwhelmed, messy and then overwhelmed by mess at the same time. Um, <laughs> she's very busy. She's always doing you know, a couple of things at the same time. You know, she can't just sit and, and watch a Disney movie. She's got to do that and colour in or do that and build a Lego or, yeah, um, I, I think, you know, the hyperactivity, I was having a chat with a, a teacher friend um, and, you know, it's sort of I was talking about this and, you know, saying, you know, we think that, you know, my daughter you know, my, and she was doing something so typical of a kid with ADHD at the time, her, her two little, so we were there for a play date, her two little friends were sitting down, we'd had dinner, they were watching a, a movie on the TV, sitting nicely on the couch. My daughter um, had put on a pair of um, roller skates and was skating around their house whilst also keeping an eye on the movie. And I don't know, does that kind of explain um I don't know yeah, she's just busy she's, she's so always busy. busy so busy and she has such an amazing way of describing what her mind feels like which was also so this is so she's nearly eight now and I reckon this was at least a year ago so she would have been six um and we were talking about you know she'd gotten in trouble at at not in trouble, but, you know, she'd been told off for talking on the mat at school and she was so upset about it um, and, you know, really down on herself. And we were talking about it and I said, um, she said, I just find it really hard not to talk. I know I need to not talk, but I find it really hard. She said, my my mind doesn't listen to me. She said, um, my mind feels messy. And she said, it feels like there are butterflies flapping around in my head um and you know if someone calls out to me calls out my name you know it, it might be like a clap and they all stop for a second and then they keep flapping so then I was like uh okay all of this time at school I've been you know since she started school this is a f since she was in kindy and she's in year three now Pretty much every um, every parent teacher meeting we've had, I've said, yeah, do you think she's got you know sort of attentional issues?" And and early on, I sort of wondered if it was just developmental because I didn't, you know, she was still very young and still developing, and I thought maybe she'll grow out of this kind of you know distractibility, this busyness, this having trouble kind of remembering instructions and then following them. And, yes, they kind of said, yeah, no, no, it's just developmental. She'll grow out of it. She's just a little girl. You know, she just needs to learn to put her hand up. She just needs to learn to, you know, sit still on the mat sort of thing. But now I, and having had those repeated conversations over over probably four years now, I am like, oh, if I wasn't who I was, if I didn't do the job that I do, if I didn't have the insight that I have and if I didn't also have my own diagnosis and therefore an enhanced understanding of this experience I if I was you know a, a, a regular parent like not a psychologist parent I probably wouldn't push I'd be like yeah okay that's just how she is but I see it not improving as she develops actually I see it you know starting to make much more of an impact on her functioning and her life and so this is why I feel, you know, my experience, her experience, I think, you know, we haven't had her assessed yet, but I feel as strongly about this for her as I, you know, did about myself pre-diagnosis. And I think had, um, I've lost my train of thought, I don't know. Um, yeah, I just might not think to kind of, I just might not think to pursue it and I don't want I think it's just really important for, for, you know, people in general, not just girls, but I think probably inattentive type in general, you know, you can go under the radar and this is not picked up at all 
or at least not until your adulthood. And by then, what sort of messages have you internalized about yourself? How do you see yourself in the world? It actually has a really, can have a really big impact on, you know, people's sort of broader psychological functioning other than ADHD stuff, you know, substance use and, you know. So let's talk about that. When girls and women aren't diagnosed, how can that ultimately affect them? What have you seen? What are you seeing? Right. So I think we have this kind of internalized sense of impairment. Um, I think when I say we, like I'm speaking for everyone, this is my view. <laughs> and I think it's pretty typical from what I see in the group, right? In the mm-hmm. Facebook group, Tracy, people are talking about this stuff all the time. Yeah. Um, and from what I hear of people on your podcast, from what I hear from talking to clients who I'm also now, you know, they're adult clients and I'm having this different lens to kind of see their challenges through and kind of taking a big deep breath because I'm also not trying to um, paint everyone with the same brush and say, well, you have these challenges, you must have ADHD, but sort of going, you know, have you ever thought about this? And then we explore it and it makes so much sense. But you know, essentially the, the common threads are, that, yeah, like I said, this internalised sense of impairment, feeling like not enough, like nothing I ever do will be enough, feeling like a failure even if objectively so, you're not a failure. And just so kind of imposter yeah. complex, perfectionism, yes, these sorts of things. Yeah. You can overcompensate and become really perfectionistic or we can kind of like a bit, you know, fall in a heap and become really dysfunctional because we don't kind of have that impetus to overcompensate and mask our symptoms. But, you know, we struggle with the day-to-day tasks of, of life and adulting and then, you know, wonder what's wrong with me. I, you know, everybody else seems to find this, you know, adulting gig so easy and simple. Um, and I think with females as well, we have much more of a tendency to kind of internalize our feelings mm-hmm. um, and struggles. And that's, you know, partly because of gender differences and social expectations. Um, but this common kind of experience of feeling something's wrong with me and then developing this really negative sense of self, you know, feeling, you know, there's a lot of self-blame a lot of sort of self-criticism, some shame, guilt, feeling a bit defective. And then, you know, then we get these kind of labels about ourselves as as though we think they're kind of character flaws. You know, this is just my personality. I'm just lazy and unmotivated and disorganized and I'm sensitive and emotionally reactive. But actually these things are just evidence of our executive dysfunction. Especially, yeah, if you're trying so hard... And you still can't do it. There's something else, right? Right. Yeah, right. And, you know, trying so hard. And I've heard, I think, I can't remember, but probably a few times it's come up in your podcast episodes of people describing this experience. It feels like I'm living life on hard mode. And that is exactly, like, I can't come up with a better way to describe the overall felt sense and experience of this. But, you know, I'm on hard mode and I don't know how to, you know, change the game to go back to like normal mode. Yeah. 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 So when we spoke, you mentioned schema therapy. I think that's how you, you, um, you pronounce it. I've never heard of it. And I thought I've heard of everything as far as therapy, right? Yeah. What is it? And why do you believe it can help, um, really help women with ADHD? Yeah. So I guess, so schema therapy, I, I mean, I've talked about these labels and these ideas that we have about ourselves that we develop over the course of our lives because of these experiences that we have um, that kind of reinforce, you know, I'm not good enough, I'm a failure, I'm, I'm defective, there's something wrong with me. So basically, schemas are in a really kind of broad Um, not technical way of explaining it. Schemas are these ideas, right? Um, These ideas that we have of ourselves, and it's more than idea, it's a really felt sense. So it incorporates thoughts, memories, um, 
beliefs, emotions kind of all bundled up into like a big messy, you know, um, collection schema. of stuff. Schema. <laughs> schema, yes. Um, and then we, you know, we, we internalise this and it really kind of can play out in terms of unhelpful patterns in our lives. You know, it's 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 to do with our self perception and how we how we view ourselves and how we think other people view us. It's not true and it's not factual, but it feels true um, and it feels real. And so, these schemas, you know, kind of lead to unhelpful coping modes, um, ways of trying to cope with this overwhelming f- feeling that sort of can get triggered by you know, things in our day to day, you know, for example, you know, feedback um, from somebody that's like a bit negative. Oh, of course, I'm such a failure. You know, it triggers that that failure schema. But we have sort of developed these ways of coping to help us, you know, get away from that uncomfortable feeling. Um, But they're not necessarily healthy or adaptive. You know, there's like kind of avoidant sort of coping styles. There's overcompensatory coping styles and sort of surrendering when you kind of just you know give into it and it, and it you know almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy like you know you're proving to yourself that it's true so you talk a lot about in your podcast um episodes you know cbt um, cognitive behavioral therapy and and why you know it's so helpful for adhd and i want to kind of really make a distinction um so so CBT absolutely, I think, can be really helpful with that here and now um, strategies to, you know, overcome those like blocks, um, mental blocks, you know, and, and emotions, um, you know, why am I procrastinating kind of, you know, cognitive restructuring and and challenging your thought processes and, and your feelings and to overcome the stuff that's happening for you right here and now, whereas schema therapy is sort of, I see is really complementary, particularly when people have had and internalised these messages over their whole lives, right? Um, it's sort of going much, much deeper through the layers to see, you know, where did this come from? Why do I believe this stuff about myself? What are the coping um, styles that I use? And how can I develop sort of some more healthy coping styles? Um, I feel like I'm not explaining it, it really well. So are you, are you basically saying that schema therapy is the goal is to really understand yourself and why you do what you do? Mm-hmm. Because why we do what we do and why we have these schemas essentially, um, you know, comes down to, to unmet emotional needs across our lives. So they might be a need for, you know, um, validation, reassurance, um, connection, um, you know, love, um, yeah, when these needs are kind of a consistently unmet um, because we perceive them to be unmet or the people around us, you know, maybe a little bit misattuned to what's going on for us, that's kind of where the gap is. So what we're trying to do with schema therapy is, yes, have this understanding but also have kind of healthier ways to meet you know, what that need is. So would you, is it common that you would do schema therapy with cognitive behavioral therapy or do you do it first and then, you know, how does it normally work? Yeah. So, um, schema therapy integrates and combines elements of CBT. So there's like, there is a really cognitive and, you know, behavioral kind of elements to schema therapy, but it also, um, combines, attachment theory, um, emotion-focused therapy, and, you know, several other therapies and and frameworks to really try to get to know all of these different parts of yourself and to help you to develop a more functional, healthy adult part who can recognise, validate, meet the needs of those vulnerable parts that are activated by our schemas, right? So tell me the difference then between talk therapy and mm. schema therapy. Well, schema therapy um, is still talk therapy, mm-hmm. but there's also some really experiential elements to schema therapy. So it integrates um, 
and I'm just going to say I'm not a schema therapy expert. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is an area of interest for me, but still very much an area of learning and development for me. Mm -hmm. Um, So surely there's people who will listen to this and go, ah, you know. No, they won't. I've never heard of schema therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Or, you know, I I missed something really important, but I'm trying to... um, explain it in a way that it makes sense but without getting too technical so yeah so integrating other um types well yeah experiential yeah experiential methods like um things that you do in the therapy so there might be kind of chair work right where you are basically talking to different parts of yourself from a more healthy perspective you know we might be talking to that that really avoidant um you know coping part of yourself and you know or talking to the critic part of yourself that really nasty voice that lives inside of your of your mind and and trying to um you know quiet it down a little bit um the part that I love the most um is imagery rescripting so um you know image imagery is such a powerful tool in therapy um in lots and lots of ways but um you know essentially using um using imagery to kind of trace back these you know feelings that might have come up with a recent example and go okay let's trace that feeling back when's the first time you remember feeling that way what was going on who was around you what did you need in that moment right and then rescripting it not to change the memory but to to try and change the way we relate to that memory so that it doesn't have such a powerful emotional connection does that make sense? It makes total sense. Yeah. You're, you're having, let's say women, because, you know, mm-hmm. that's who, who we deal with, at least here on this podcast. Mm-hmm. So you're having women think about things that they've never thought about as it relates to um, experiences. Yeah. I, I just had, you know, something like that happen. And, and I was just, oh my gosh, I've never even thought of it that way. I can't remember what it was right now, but it was... It was pretty major. I, I remember just, oh my gosh, no one has ever asked me that question. So I just took what I thought to be true as the truth when in fact it really wasn't. Absolutely. Okay. And so, and you think that this is especially helpful for women with ADHD mm. because... Why? Not, not because of their ADHD necessarily, but because okay. of the messages that they've, like, you know, messages and i.e., you know, therefore developed schemas about themselves mm-hmm. that, um, you know, over the course of their lives, you know, because of their ADHD. So if I, you know, thinking about my own sort of experience and the messages that I've internalised, you know, about myself, I've done the schema questionnaire. It's part of the the training. You know, when you 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 go and learn about schema therapy, you do the schema questionnaire. Um, I've taken it to my psychologist and gone, oh, look at these schemas, you know. And there are some really um, common schemas that come up for people with ADHD. And I think you know, there's probably still a little bit of a gap. In, not a gap. Yeah, there might still be a little bit of a gap in the research. There's not a lot of research. There's some. Um, with regards to schema therapy and ADHD and kind of the overlaps. But some of the common schemas that come up for people with ADHD are this kind of like defectiveness and shame. So feeling inadequate, there's something wrong with me, like I'm I'm bad or mm-hmm. I'm, you know, not good. Too much. Yeah, or too much absolutely is a really common one. Um, failure is another really common schema for people with ADHD. So like feeling like I haven't met my potential, I'm lacking, never enough, I'll never get there, I feel like mm-hmm. I've got to work harder than everyone else, I'm doomed to fail. Um, and then this other schema, which is probably speaks more to, um, you know, the, the impulsivity that comes with ADHD, but that insufficient self-control. Mm-hmm. So it's this feeling like I struggle with self-discipline. I struggle to follow, follow through on things. I make impulsive choices and decisions. I'm emotionally reactive. Um, yeah, yes, I can't finish sorry. anything. Yeah, I can't finish anything. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So 
What are the ADHD traits that you feel are responsible for your success? Yeah, I think sort of for me, big picture thinking. I don't think that's necessarily an ADHD trait, but I think I have this ability to kind of, I've got so much happening in my mind mm-hmm. um, that I, um, I can, yeah, I can just sort of make sense of things in a different way. I My hyper-focus has been, you know, a massive strength for me throughout my degree, you know, my, my education um, particularly in my postgraduate studies um, and in my career, but it's also, you know, like it saved my bacon. But, you know, I, I sit down sometimes and I will get a week or two weeks worth of work or report writing done in 12 hours. Well, that's not necessarily functional. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to move away from that. Um, but I think, you know, I, I have a really good sense of intuition, sort of gut feeling, and I think I'm quite socially attuned and socially intelligent. So that really does play into my work and um, how I do my job and how I relate to people and how I understand people. So, Yeah. Mm. And what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? Oh, being kind to yourself. For me, the most significant part of getting a diagnosis was that it gave me a different way to understand myself and the challenges and the things that I struggle with, more of a sense of self-compassion. It's been a huge period of growth for me personally and in terms of my professional interests as well. But I just think learning to quiet that inner critic um, that perpetuates all of those negative beliefs that you kind of have gathered up because of your executive dysfunction. That is the key to living life successfully with ADHD for me. Well, and it's so brilliant because now knowing what you know, Mm. just the number of lives that you can now change and then they in turn change more lives and it just becomes this huge ripple, right? 100%, yeah. That gets bigger and bigger. So- is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have? Um, gosh, I don't think so. But I think, you know, what I do want to say is I feel so passionate about educating people and advocating for, you know, and this has come from a really personal perspective, you know, looking at my daughter and me kind of being a psychologist and saying for four years at school, do you think she could have, you know, ADHD and being dismissed? <laughs> then I'm Tell like, me oh about it. Gosh, right? It, I know that this yeah. is happening to other people. I know that, you know, speaking yep. to teacher friends, they say, yeah, we, you know, I, I don't know what I'm looking for. I don't see it. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, there's been a massive shift in the research and how we understand ADHD, but it hasn't, that for some reason, it hasn't, being disseminated it hasn't um translated into you know for us at least in australia the education system yeah, no i i would yeah. completely agree yeah so i think then there'll there will continue to be this gap in people not being diagnosed because um they they you know educators teachers people they have such a big um input into diagnosis and if they're not knowing what they're seeing and looking for or at, how can they report on it effectively and and reflect on, you know, a child's experience and how they are, you know, at school. Home is a different story. Um, and, and I just well, think it's a big In school, and I don't know if it's this way in Australia, but I still get this sense that it's about, you know, that child has a moral failing or a character flaw. That's why they're behaving that way. Yeah. And or hmm. their parents are bad parents. Yes, you know, absolutely. They just have no boundaries, no structure, no exactly. rules. That's exactly. not it at all. Um, and, you know, I, I just, it makes me so sad to mm-hmm. feel that um, particularly, yeah. and I, you know, I think particularly like little boys with ADHD get this a lot and it, and it makes me sad. And, and I think, yeah, the conversation about neurodiversity needs to change. Um, a lot 
and our understanding of that needs to change um, because, you know, they're labelled things like naughty. You know, that's the naughty kid. That's the disruptive kid. That's the, like you said, like a character flaw. And and it's not what they just, what they need is a, a you know, they need people to relate to them differently yes. so that they can thrive in that environment. Absolutely. And yeah. they need to be listened to. Yes. Yeah, they, they sure. usually have the formula, right? Yeah. yeah, just like we do. If we do it our way, we mm. can do it. We just can't do it your way, typically. That's it, and that's my daughter to a T. She gets mm-hmm. so frustrated and, and stressed around homework stuff. If we're kind of trying to, my husband and I are trying to help her, um, you know, with her homework or we're supervising her homework, she's so frustrated with us if if she can't do it her way. And so really allowing that kind of just resolves a lot lot of um, issues and distress and and frustration on on all sides. Absolutely. Hmm. So April, where can people find you if they want to know more about you and what you do? Well, um, (laughs) (laughs) I I work in a group private practice, um, Perth Psychology Collective in Perth. Wait, wait, Um, what is it called? Perth Psychology Collective? Perth Psychology Collective, and okay. that's our website, perthpsychologycollective.com.au. Um, there's a gap in services for people, particularly in Australia, being um, diagnosed and, um, you know, getting on a wait list to see a psychiatrist is a huge amount of, of time. You know, we are doing ADHD assessments at the clinic where I work at, at Perth Psychology Collective, and not for children, but for adults, we are able to do these assessments by telehealth, so via a video link. So even if you're located elsewhere in Australia, you're not in Perth, we are um, we're able to um, offer that service via via video, um, and, and at least you know get you a thorough, you know get people a thorough assessment and some feedback and you know diagnostic clarity around what what could be going on for them. So um, how long does that normally take? Oh, is it a, is it a series of a couple appointments or is it? Yeah. A couple of appointments. Um, you know, we use a couple of, uh, different psychometric tools or measures, questionnaires and, um, you know, executive functioning measures. Um, and then, you know, we integrate that with a structured clinical interview that, that is specific to ADHD as well as like a background sort of interview where it's a little bit more conversational and, and getting an idea of this person and what their life's been like and making differential diagnoses as well. As you know, Tracy is super important. So ruling out things like bipolar mm-hmm. and um, ruling out or in because they can be comorbid. There's no reason why someone couldn't right. have both. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, just trying to provide diagnostic um, clarity around what's going on for the person is really important. I'm online as are the rest of the team here. Um, We are sort of, yeah, kicking off. We've done some professional development and sort of uh, trying to develop this um, ADHD assessment side of things. Mm -hmm. I have a personal slash public um, Instagram profile, which People are welcome to follow if they want, but it's really just, you know, motivational, like going to the gym stuff for me because that's a really <laughs> big part of how I manage my mm-hmm. health and my symptoms. Um, but what's also, that, What's that Instagram handle? Oh, the Instagram handle is um, journey365. So all in words except the six is a number six. So at journey365 and... Um, I may well actually be starting another sort of, you know, ADHD kind of advocacy and educational sort of related social media and other stuff um, in the near future. And so if people follow that Instagram, I'll make an announcement on there for where people can find me when when I'm ready to um, set that up and have it up and running and functional. Wonderful. So we will have, okay, I'm going to read it again. It's perthpsychologycollective.com.au. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. Okay. And then at Jenny, three spelled out. Sorry. A letter, uh, a number six, and then you spelled out five? 
Okay, I think that's my accent here at Journey. So J O U R E Y Journey. Journey. Okay, Journey. Journey. And then is it just three six five the the numbers? Okay, three three in a word, six in a number, and a five in a word. Okay. Yeah. Regardless, we will have this in our show notes. Yeah. April, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. I, yeah, I've been really excited to talk to you and to, um, you know, like try, try and um, get this message out there, which I think, you know, listeners and followers of the Facebook page know this really well, but, you know, the more that we can talk about it um, and, and try and involve other people, the more we can be heard as a community. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with April, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And your reviews, yep, they really help. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka. And we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.